The um, theologian Frederick uh, Buechner is a wonderful author. author. If you haven't read any of his things, uh, I would urge you to do that. He said this, theology, theology is the study of God and his ways. For all we know, dung beetles may study man and his ways and call it humanology. If so, we would probably be more touched and amused than irritated. One hopes that God feels likewise. The idea is that if you're going to think about God and his ways, um, if you're going to talk about God in any, any way, uh, you're either going to be making stuff up on your own, just whatever you think God is, he, she, it, them, whatever. You're going to be making it up as you go along, just whatever you fancy, as you look around the, uh, the world around you, and, and that's about the best that you can do. Unless you have the Holy Scriptures. Then, if you believe that God has spoken to us in His Scriptures, then you can start to take away some of from what the Bible says. But even at that, even if you are an expert in the Holy Scriptures like me, I, I'm, yeah, it's really not funny, is it? Okay. All right, I'm just trying to... Even if you're an expert, that you know as much as you can possibly know from the Bible, do you realize that you're just barely scratching the surface of what can be known about God? Just barely touching on a few high spots. You're not going down very deep at all. And that's if you know it all. But one place where you can go down deep and into something that is absolutely indescribable something that is utterly unique is solus Christus. Christ alone. This great pillar, this great doctrine that the Reformers rolled out as one of the main things about the Reformation, one of the main things that human beings, you and I, must have. You can, have, you can not have a lot of stuff in your life, but if you have Him... You are way below the surface. You're going down into the very depths of the heart of God Himself because we're talking about God's only Son. We're talking about the perfect image of God, the reflection of God, the, the exact imprint of God when you talk about solas Christus, Christ alone. And so we've been looking at the Reformation, uh, these five solas. Today we're going to look at solas Christus. And uh, in your bulletin, there's the passage printed. I've been somewhat ambitious. I've printed almost the entire fifth chapter. We're going to read it quickly. And I hope that you pay close attention. And then as we get into our, our, our sermon this morning, into our lesson, I'll point out some things uh, that I think uh, we need to concentrate on this morning. So... Hear God's word, Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that 
Suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows His love to us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin was not counted there where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. For the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. This is the word of the Lord. Now you may think I'm crazy for taking on this passage, not even the whole chapter, but this passage, most of the chapter, and try to do it in a Sunday morning. I am going to do it. I'm going to dazzle you. Because I'm only going to hit some of the high spots. <laughs> We're going to look at three things. Here's your outline if you're keeping track. We're going to look at one man... The great exchange. We're going to look at one man on your worst day. And finally, we're going to look at one man in another garden and another tree. So there's the outline. And if you just remember those three things, let me tell you, your life will become way more robust than it is right now. Last week I told you the Bible talks about this theological idea of the great exchange. 
God giving His Son for us, and in some amazing way, through the death of Christ, paying for our sins, and through the life of Christ, His perfect obedience to the Father, His act of righteousness upon the cross in saving sinners, and His resurrection from the dead, His ascension into heaven as the King of glory, and His session at the right hand of God, and God Almighty, the Creator of all the universe, handing Jesus, one man, Solus Christus, handing Him the scepter of righteousness, and saying to Him, Thy throne, O God, shall reign forever. Now, that's the great exchange. And the Apostle Paul, in this chapter, we can't look at everything, but I'm going to go fast. Pay attention, because his reasoning throughout the book of Romans, Paul's reasoning and his logic is very tight, very concise. You've got to be following. There's no punctuation. It's in English, but in Greek it's not. And you've got to really be, have your eyes open and your heart open to see what he's saying. Justification. We get three things from this great exchange. Justification. And justification simply means this. We could go into all the theology, but let me just give it to you plain. Justification is the removal of your sin through the death of Christ. And then the second part of justification, which we don't talk about nearly enough, is the clothing of a sinner with the righteousness of Christ. You see, it's one thing to be forgiven. That's great in and of itself. But then what happens on day two? Or day three or day four. You continue to sin. What then? Justification is a one-time act. How in the world are you ever going to actually address sin in a reasonable way? And it's through the imputation or the clothing. God does not make you inherently righteous. He clothes you with His righteousness. Listen to what Martin Luther, it's appropriate to quote Luther. This is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Listen to what Luther says in one of his best little letters that he wrote. There are two kinds of Christian righteousness. The first is alien righteousness. Justitia alienum. Alien righteousness. The righteousness of another instilled or given to us from without. It's not ours, it's alien to us. This is the righteousness of Christ given to us. The second, now listen carefully because Protestants forget this, our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters are way better at it than we are, to our everlasting shame. And so listen carefully, the second kind of righteousness is our proper righteousness. The work with that first alien righteousness, a life, a life spent in good works to God. This righteousness is the fruit and consequence of the righteousness of the first type, the alien Righteousness. In other words, justification is the grounds for your relationship with God and what we call sanctification or your acting right, doing right, what we call active righteousness in the life of the Christian is doing good deeds, doing what is right before God and for God. 
And it flows out of that first righteousness, that alien righteousness. Now, if you get them back, and this is what the Reformation was all about, by the way, and don't have time to talk about that, but if you get them backwards, and if your justification, if your rightness with God is based on your behavior, guess what? Run for your lives. Find the deepest cave you can hide in. And like it says in the book of Revelation, ask the mountain to fall and crush you. Because that's your only hope. And even then, God will find you under the rubble. If your standing with God is based on how well you're behaving, nobody in this room is going to pass muster. Yes? Nobody! But, on the other hand, if you understand that you have been imputed with righteousness, clothed with righteousness, that you are bearing the righteousness, the image of God, what we lost in the garden, is now yours, and you start living out of that. No matter how paltry it may be, no matter how little it may be, just baby steps. That now it takes on the character, the DNA, if you will, of that alien righteousness. That's what Luther's saying. Justification. It's amazing. And yet in church, you know, everybody's, oh, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner. I'm, tell- I'm your pastor and I know more than you. If you have asked Jesus Christ to be your King and Savior, you are no longer a sinner. Now, there are theologians that don't agree with that, but I'm... I, I, do, I don't agree with that. I agree with other theologians that say, you are now the righteousness of Christ. Amen? Amen? Now, you may not like that. I know some of you say, well, what did Luther said it this way, simul justus et peccator. You're at the same time just, but sinner. We, we're sinners because we continue to sin and we fail. But our nature, have you been born again? Anybody in this room been born again? Anyone? If you've been born again, then what nature do you have? Do you have a dual nature? Uh, You can't have a dual nature. It's not possible. That's Greek uh, Platonism and Aristotelianism and all of that. You can't have two natures. You have one new nature. But you're still clothed in the flesh. You guys in the journey, you remember the captain and the mast and all that? No time to tell you the story. But I mean, really... You are a new creation in Christ. And if you don't live out of that, you will always be living in in, in defeat. You'll always be thinking that you're no good. And you'll always be believing that God is holding His nose. And if you believe that, then Christianity is the worst possible religion that you could adopt. The worst one. But on the other hand, if you do it the other way, and justification is the grounds for your life, and out of that, you live and do what is right. And you fight sin from there. Christianity is like nothing in this world. It becomes a joy and a delight. And although we sin and it crushes us and we repent with tears and brokenness and we cry out to God, Oh God, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Renew me. Uh, uh, you know, uh, spank me with hyssop and, and, and purge me and make me whiter. Although we grieve over our sin. And if you don't grieve over your sin, something's wrong with you. You need to come talk to me. Yes, we grieve. But we have hope. And the hope is not in you getting better. 
The hope is in Jesus Christ, our justification. Okay, let's move on. Look at what he says. We have peace with God. Peace in the Bible is not tranquility. Tranquility may be a fruit of peace. But peace with God in the Old and New Testament is shalom. It's being, it's being made right with God. It's, it's having a relationship that was broken, restored, and repaired, and fixed, and enhanced. It was the promise, listen folks, it was the promise of God's presence among His people. You know, I'll tell you something very personal. You know, I pray for our church. I'm sure many of you pray for our church. The main prayer, the, the main, look, I would love to see the, 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 the chairs full. I would love to see two, three services a day. I would love to just have people packing in here and knocking the doors down to get in, falling over each other to come have communion with us. I would love that. And I pray for that, but it's not the first thing I pray for. I'll tell you very personally, the first thing I pray for every day when I pray for Christ the King Presbyterian Church, I pray, oh God, bring your presence to our church even if I'm there by myself why bother getting up in the morning why even bother if God is not present yes why bother if he's not then Jesus said eat drink and be merry for tomorrow you die (laughs) but if he's present then it doesn't matter what I eat. It doesn't matter what I drink. It doesn't matter now. I can rejoice in everything. Sin notwithstanding. I can rejoice in friendships, in relationships, in, in church, in, in recreation, in sports, in art, in technology, in music. I can redeem everything. Sin notwithstanding. Yes? Everything. If I have peace with God. Jesus said, in the world you'll have tribulation. You're going to have trouble. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. He's not telling you you're not going to have trouble. He's saying, center your life in me, solas, Christus. Center your life in that. And then let the, let the hell come and go. Let goods and kindreds come and go, as Luther said in my mighty fortress. Let them come. Nothing can destroy me. Why? Because my life is on a rock. I have peace with God. If I live, great, Paul said. If I die, better. Amazing. I want to be Him. Don't you want to be Him? So that every little circumstance, every time the Dow Jones Industrial Average does this, what happens? Those of you that are in the stock market. If it goes like this, one little tick. Yeah, but feeling good, feeling good. What happens if it ticks down a little bit? Feeling bad, feeling bad. And if it starts going ching, 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 really bad. Disaster is coming. It's the end of the world. The Antichrist is here. Come on. You're on a rock. Let goods and kindreds grow. This mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. It's Martin Luther. 
Access to God. Think about this because really this is where Paul's going in this chapter. He is taking you back to the garden. He's saying, let's go back. And every, every Jewish believer and even the Gentiles that read this fifth chapter would have said, he's talking about the Garden of Eden. I'm with you. I'm tracking with you. Now, no, maybe you're not, but I'm here to tell you it's my job. He's talking about the Garden of Eden. Access to God. God drove man out of the garden. Genesis chapter 3 verse 24. Drove him out of the garden. And then on the east of the garden of Eden. He placed a cherubim with a flaming sword. That, that barred the way. So that man could not come back into the garden. And eat of the tree of life. And live forever. Access was denied. And every single time in the Old Testament where you have access to God, it gets harder and harder and harder to the point where when they finally had the temple, there were so many barriers to anybody getting into the temple that at the very best, once a year, one man who took a complete bath, was bathed several times, had clean clothes, but it was a big ceremony. And even then, he only got to go in there once a year and with total trepidation because he didn't know if he was going to live or die. Gentiles couldn't. Most of us couldn't have gone in. We were Gentiles. Most of us would have been out there, not even in the temple precincts. We would have had to be in the court of the Gentiles, a separate place. And the women, you ladies, you would have had your whole other place and it would have been further away than the men because you're twice as responsible for sin. (laughs) All right, never mind. Paul does this. He says, look folks, you have nothing. He's telling the people, you've got nothing to boast in. Nothing. We looked at that. Chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4. He says, nothing, nothing, nothing to boast, nothing to boast. Then he comes to this verse, in verse 2. Look at it quickly. But we do now have something to boast in. Justification, peace with God, access to God. We have something. In your Bibles, it probably says rejoice. That's not a good translation. The better translation is we have something to boast in. And boasting. What is it that we're boasting in? The hope of the glory of God. And what that means is, it is it, boasting, this word is really good. It means an exceeding confidence. It's a delight that almost ca- captures you and picks you up. It's like, it's like tasting something really delicious that somebody worked hard on and you get delighted by its flavor. Or, or you sip a glass of really good wine and you say, wow, this is really good. Or, or, or you see a piece of art that you know was, that was painstakingly done. Or some other sculpture that was crafted with I- immense detail. Anything you can think of. Any kind of wonderful thing in this world. And you look at a sunset or a waterfall and you go, wow, it's exquisite and glory. And you delight. You boast in it. You radiate because it radiates glory. And he's saying that is God. We have now got that relationship with God. Through Jesus, solus Christus. Not just an abstract God out there in the heavenly somewhere, somehow. No. We can go deep with this God because we know Him, Jesus, our Lord. 
We can rejoice in sufferings. We can boast. He's saying the same thing about our sufferings. Look at the reversal. Say, you know, suffering usually tears us down. How many of you have suffered a disease or an extreme loss, someone you loved, or a marriage has gone sideways, or children have gone off the rails and your heart is broken, or you lost a job or money, any number of things, and you're suffering, or somebody hates you because you're a Christian and you're suffering. And Paul's saying it does not have to destroy you. In fact, he uses an amazing word. He says, that suffering, if you will accept it, the way it's supposed to be accepted, not just poor, poor me, look at poor me. Uh-uh. No, he's saying rejoice in it. Boast in it. I'm suffering for the sake of Christ. I'm one with Him. I'm united with Him. It can bring meaning, purpose, character, the glory for which you were created. Listen to what Dr. Ferguson, Sinclair Ferguson, I love him. He is just amazing. Listen to what he says. If this doesn't excite you, folks, I, I, I can't help you, but let it excite you. Embrace what he says. Listen, what does it mean to have fallen, sinned, and fallen short of the glory of God? He's rever- referring to what we talked about a few weeks ago about sinning and falling short of the glory of God. Paul is saying the consequence of sin is that you miss your destiny. Do any of you sit, you know, do you ever sit there and say, gosh, what is life all about? What is the meaning of all this? I'm going to live 50, 60, 70, maybe 80, 90 years, I don't know, and then I'm gone, I'm dead. What is the meaning? And Paul is saying the, con- Paul is saying the consequence of sin is that you miss your destiny, what you were created for. We have all sinned, I'm quoting Dr. Ferguson, we've all sinned, we've fallen, we've plummeted. The word fallen means plummet, like you just come out of the heavens down to the earth without a parachute. Plummeting short of the glory of God. You were made for the glory of God, to enjoy His presence. Listen to this. To feel the warmth and the power and the beams of His glory radiating upon your life and transforming it into His likeness. Look at you, Paul says. You've... Exchange the glory of God for the shame of sin. Romans chapter 1. But the marvel of the gospel is this. If you don't hear anything I say today, listen to, at least listen to Dr. Ferguson. The marvel of the gospel is this. That we who exchanged the glory of God for the shame of sin have discovered in Jesus Christ one who is able to save us because he exchanged the glory of God in which he forever dwelt for the shame of our sin. He has borne the shame of our sin on the cross in his agony and shame under the judgment of God and exposed to the ignominy of men. Jesus exchanged His glory for our shame that He might exchange our shame for His glory. Jesus has come to restore God's glory to us and in us. Our destiny has been rediscovered. Solus Christus. 
in Him alone. If your life, if, if you hear yourself talking about God and all you ever talk about is God, God, God in the abstract, something is desperately missing from your life because you would know nothing about God if it were not for Jesus Christ, His Son. We would not understand. We'd only be out here on the surface, barely able to comprehend But solus Christus, down you go, down you go into the deep, rich, loamy soil where your life can become fruitful and filled with joy and gladness. He exchanges His glory for our shame. And our shame, He takes. One man on our worst day, listen quickly, While we were weak, Christ died for us. And then Paul makes the argument. He's he's a rabbi after all, so he's going to make a tight argument. Listen carefully. Scarcely will uh, somebody die for a righteous man, maybe for a good man. Some would even dare to die. But God, remember what I told you? Put a circle around that. But God shows His love when? When did He show you His love? When? While we were yet sinners. If I had not learned this years ago and embraced it and started to live in it, I can tell you right now I would have ditched Christianity a long time ago. You know why? Because I kept sinning. And I did it robustly. Why? Because I thought, God will forgive me. I presumed on His grace. He'll forgive me. I I can do anything. He'll forgive me. I didn't understand His grace. I didn't even care about His grace. I made Him up in my own mind. But once I learned this, oh my goodness, while I was still a sinner, He loved me. While I was at my worst, on my worst day, He reached down and got me. Now, that changes everything. I will live for this man. I will I will love this man. I will get down on my knees and I will kiss his feet. And if he says jump, I'll say how high. Because nobody has loved me that way. No one. Nobody. And nobody ever will. Most of us are married or you have children. Everything's conditional. Everything's conditional. Everything. Even with our kids. We say we love our kids unconditionally. No, you haven't taken your kid to rehab. You haven't taken your kid to drug rehab yet. Or bailed them out of jail. Or gone to court with them while they're getting a divorce. You haven't done it. Or watched them spit in your face and say, I hate you. It's hard to love them. And on our worst day, God loved us. On that day, that day that we spit in His face, He said, no. And He dragged you to Him and kissed you and said, I love you. Leave me alone. Let me go. I don't want you. No, 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 no. You're not getting away from me. That's why I'm a Calvinist, by the way. Because I would have done that. And don't tell me you wouldn't have. Yes? Okay. So the rest of you are Arminians. Well, that's nice to know. Finally, the truth is out. 
He didn't come get me against my will. He changed my will. He raised me from the dead. He breathed life ruch, into me. And I became a living soul. And I gazed up into the eyes of Solus Christus. And if you ever see him, you will never not love him. Now Paul anticipates a problem. He says, shall we keep on sinning that grace may abound? Should we do that? What does he say? May it never be. So don't think you can presume on God's grace once you're a believer. Don't play around with His grace. Don't say, ah, He'll forgive me. Because He chastens those He loves. There are consequences to sin. Never what we deserve, right? Psalm 130 and Psalm 103 both say we're never treated like we deserve. So our consequences are never as bad as what we ought to get. But He will chasten whom He loves. And if you haven't been chastened, well, I'm sure most of you have. I have. One man brings this to us. One man on our worst day. One man. Another tree. Another garden. Adam, and he look at verses 12 through 14. By one man's disobedience, he's talking about the wages of sin. By one man's act, one man's trespass, sin came on all humanity. Now, I know that that's going to raise a lot of questions. That's not fair. How come, how does that happen? Is it, translate, is it transmitted genetically? Is it transmitted spiritually? How is sin transmitted to us? How does all this happen? And on and on we go. And I can tell you, uh, the theological books are full, they're thick and heavy, and nobody really knows. It's very, very mysterious. Dr. Sproul, R.C. Sproul, said that is the one, one of one of the many unanswerable questions in Scripture. Why did Adam sin when there was not one inclination in him to sin? Not one. Why did he do it? Theologian Reinhold Niebuhr, if you've never read any of the, he's another old dead guy, but you should read some of Reinhold Niebuhr's writings. He said this, the fact that human beings are born are innately by nature sinners is the only Christian doctrine that can be empirically verified and proven beyond doubt. And he goes on to say, everyone, everyone, whether criminal or saint, everybody sins. Everybody. Regardless. One man, Adam, did this. One man. And mysteriously, folks, Dr. Sproul says there's no way to understand it. Mysteriously, we all join in. We join the parade. We throw confetti. And we join in with sin. We love it until another love displaces that love. Did you hear? Something has to displace it. You just won't, oh, I think I'll just change today and become a really good person. That doesn't happen. Something invades your life. Something pushes out. 
So you have a garden and a tree, Adam and the tree of life. And he reaches up and takes the tree. Takes the fruit from the tree. And then centuries later, Jesus enters another garden. No one, no one I know of captures this like Dr. Keller, Tim Keller. He nails it and he nails it and he nails it over and over. One man's disobedience as one trespass led to condemnation. Listen, verse 18. So one act of righteousness leads to justification, life for all. For by one man's disobedience, many are made sinners. So by one man's obedience, many are made righteous. Nobody does it like Tim Keller. Listen to what he says. Because the only hope you have, my friends, is if Jesus transforms your heart. And this, this will transform your heart. Listen. Now, there is another garden. And a second Adam. And another command. Jesus Christ has been sent by the Father to go to the cross, which is also a tree. To the first Adam, He said, Obey Me about the tree and I will bless you. And Adam didn't do it. But to the second Adam, He says, Obey Me about the tree. And I will crush you. I will crush you. And Jesus did it. Solus Christus. Who died for you? Who went into that garden and said, My God, if there's any way, let this cup the cup of wrath, let it pass from me. Who else loves you that way? And when the Father said no, Jesus said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Another tree, another garden, and one act of supreme obedience for you. Now that changed me. That and that alone has changed my life. Jesus, solus Christus. On my worst day, He loved me. He transformed me. He gave Himself for me. Obey me and I'll bless you? No. Obey me? I'm going to crush you. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Solus Christus. Will you trust Him? I hope you will. Father, uh, we, what can we say? We can't even begin to imagine what that means for you to have crushed your own son for us. I don't think we will. That's why we have to 
That's why you've planned it for eternity, because it's going to take us all eternity to plumb the depths of that reality of your great love for mankind. Not when we were good, but when we were on our worst day. And I pray, Father, that you would transform the people of Christ the King, all of us, transform us. If we, if we embrace this, we would be different people. Help us, save us, and have mercy on us, I pray. Amen.